0: It's my pleasure to welcome you this morning as we have gathered together to, uh, uh, to worship and uh, give God the praise that he is due, uh, praise for who he is and what he has done for us. And uh, later in the service, we're going to uh, uh, look at uh, the Paul in Athens and provoked by the number of idols that are there. And he comes there and he declares to them the true and living God, the creator uh, of the universe, and the all-sufficient one that has sent his Son so that we might have life. And so this morning our call to worship will come from Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in the 18th verse. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior, There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, And all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And the Lord, all the descendants of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise this morning for who you are. Uh, We give you praise because you are the one true and living God. You are the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord, you have created in beauty. You have created to display your glory. And Lord, we recognize that in every created thing, Some aspect of your glory is made manifest to us and is displayed through that which you have made, Lord, and we give you praise. And we know that even though creation declares your glory, uh, it is incapable of of declaring all that there is to be about you and that uh, you have also spoken to us perfectly through your word and made yourself known to us more profoundly through the scriptures that you have spoken to us in righteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you have spoken to us. And, Lord, we thank you also that you have made provision for us in Christ Jesus. We have fallen short of your glory and your holy standard. We have chosen so often to worship the created thing instead of the creator. We've fallen short of your glory. We've rebelled against you. But in your grace and mercy, you became a man. You sent Jesus to die on the cross So that we might have forgiveness and you raised him from the dead so that we might have life and lord We thank you and we give you praise for who you are and what you've done and lord We thank you that uh, you have sent to us your spirit To be in us to be with us and to enable us and empower us to do that Which is pleasing in your sight to worship you in spirit and truth to walk in righteousness To know and to believe the truth and then lord to have his fruit produced in us so that we might be your people, and we might be reflectors of your glory as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us and that you would be pleased with the worship that we offer. May it be worship that is in spirit and truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I invite you to take your hymnal and uh, uh, turn to him. Let me invite your attention to the Word of God. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we are following Paul on his second missionary journey. He has been beaten with rods and thrown into prison in Philippi and then uh, a earthquake caused the doors to open and the chains to fall off and he was run out of Philippi and went to Thessalonica where he started a riot and got run out of town and then he went to Berea where he found Fair-minded people eager to hear and apply the scriptures, but the people who'd run him out of Thessalonica chased him to Berea and ran him out of there, and now he goes to Athens. And so we pick up uh, the journeys of Paul as we turn our attention to his ministry in Athens. And Acts chapter 17, I'll begin reading in the 14th verse. Acts chapter 17, verse 14. uh, And this, we believe, is the perfect... God breathed uh, words, words directly from our Creator and our Redeemer. This is the Word of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. Now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear Some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for this opportunity to gather together around your word. And Lord, we're just thankful for who you are and your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we are thankful that you have called us together as a body of Christ, your people in this place at this time. And God, we're thankful for the truth that unites us and the spirit that makes us one as you bring us together in a common faith of salvation by grace through faith in Christ based on the scriptures, for your glory. And Lord, we just pray for each one. We pray for Timothy today as he travels across the country to begin his military service. We pray for Rachel as she is not well. We pray for the dendies who aren't with us today. Lord, we pray your grace for them. And Lord, we just pray for our community. We pray that you would help us to have a burden for those that live around us, that are lost, that do not know the good news of Jesus, or maybe have some religion about God, but not a relationship with him. Lord, we pray that we would be provoked by their lostness and that we would be encouraged and motivated to declare to them the truth of who you are and what you have done to us in Christ Jesus, done for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray now that as we open up your scripture, as we open the word, that you would speak to us, Lord, that your spirit would help us to understand, that your spirit would help us to believe, and that your help, your spirit would help us to be provoked by lostness. And Lord, that we would be motivated to speak truth and love to all who will hear. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we have been following Paul on this second missionary journey. Uh, run out of Philippi, run out of Thessalonica, run out of Berea. And now he finds himself in Athens. And it appears from the text that his intent was not really to preach in Athens. He didn't really have the intention to do as he did and go to the synagogue and declare uh, the things of God. It it looks from the text that he gets to Athens and he's simply waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to arrive. When he got to Berea, he found some fair-minded Jews who eagerly received the word from him as he taught Uh, reasoned with them from the Old Testament as he uh, explained the passages in the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah, that the Messiah must suffer and rise again on the third day. And as he demonstrated from the Old Testament that Jesus was in fact that Christ and that all the prophecies, all the things that the Old Testament said about the Messiah uh, were fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah. And that's the message that he preached as he went from town to town. But when he gets to Athens, it seems like he is simply waiting. He has left Silas and Timothy in Berea, I guess, to make sure that that church, uh, those people, those fair-minded Bereans that studied the Scripture and believed the Word uh, that he had delivered to them. Uh, In chapter 17, verse 12, we see that many of the Jews believed... Not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as well as men believed. And so a church was established there in Berea. And then the the enemies from Thessalonica arrived and ran Paul out. Well, Paul was the lightning rod. He was the one that was causing the riots. And so Timothy and Silas stayed behind, I guess, to make sure that church got a good start and got established. And so Paul went to Athens where he could kind of blend in with the crowds and the tourists. And he was going to wait there for... Timothy and Silas to join him. Timothy and Silas remained in Berea. Paul went to Athens with a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed in verse 15. And then, but then, in verse 16, we see that while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And so Paul was provoked by the lostness of, ...that he saw in Athens. He was provoked by the lostness... ...and because of that... ...because his spirit was agitated... ...and irritated... ...and even became angry... ...because the city was filled with idols... ...that provocation... ...of their lostness... ...motivated him... ...to go to the synagogue... ...and to begin to preach. Because of that provocation... ...we read in verse 17... ...therefore... And that therefore points to the provocation of his spirit when he saw that the spirit was given over to, the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. And so he arrived in Athens with the, the purpose of, uh, of waiting for the team to be together. He was now alone, he'd been traveling with Luke and Luke had stayed in Thessalonica, and then he had traveled with Timothy and Silas. They had stayed in Berea, and now he was in Athens all by himself. And his intention appears to be to wait until Silas and Timothy join him. But because he was provoked by their their lostness, he was motivated to go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that had met there, as was his custom. We have seen in the second missionary journey, when he gets to a town... First place he goes is to the synagogue where the people had gathered together to study the Old Testament scriptures, to pray for the coming of the Messiah, and he goes to the synagogue to reason from the, with them from those scriptures and to demonstrate that the Messiah that they're praying for has come. He has come in Christ Jesus, and, uh, uh, and so he goes there. But we also see something different when he gets to Athens. Not only does he go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers that are are there, but he also went to the marketplace. He was provoked by their lostness. And his spirit was unsettled. He was irritated. He was even angry at the lostness that he saw all around him in Athens And that lostness motivated him to reason with them from the scriptures, to explain to them who the Messiah was, and to demonstrate from the scripture that Jesus was in fact that Messiah, provoked by their lostness. And and I was kind of amazed as I read through this passage and as I studied and looked at ancient Athens, ancient Greek, I was amazed at the comparisons between the culture in Athens 2,000 years ago and the culture that surrounds us today. Many of the same things that that Paul encountered in in Athens, many of the, the indications of lostness that he saw all around him are present around us today. And we need to be provoked by that lostness. We need to be Uh, our our spirit needs to be uneasy because there are so many people lost around us. There are so many people that are dying and going to hell. There are so many people that are worshiping other things and people that are even deceived because they're very religious. And yet they do not know God and they do not know the forgiveness of sins. They do not know that Jesus died for their sins and God has raised him from the dead. And the only way to be saved from God's judgment. It's to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and to put trust in him. We are surrounded by lostness. And I believe this text calls us to be provoked by that. And that provocation should motivate us to do what Paul did, to speak, to reason, to explain the scriptures, and to demonstrate that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And so let's look at, uh, uh, at the culture that he encountered and see how it compares to the culture that surrounds us. We see uh, Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Athens was filled with idols. And Athens was a culture, a community that was very much in decline. You know, as we're studying through Daniel, we've been looking at the kingdoms that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, and Daniel had visions of the the kingdoms that would come. And we've talked about the fact that uh, Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians... ...who were defeated by the Medes and the Persians, who were defeated by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And so Athens had been the capital city of a massive empire ruled by Alexander the Great that had come to rule much of the world... And to Hellenize much of the world to make the world Greek and to make Greek the the common language. And so Athens had been an important city, the city, the the center of an empire. And it was filled with art and architecture and the great philosophers and, and thinkers of the world converged upon Athens. It was an important city, a mighty city, an influential city. And people from all over the world came there because Alexander the Great, Athens, was ruling pretty much the known world. But by the time of Paul, by the time of Jesus, Athens is destroyed by that fourth beast. The Roman Empire had come and conquered Greece. And so Athens was a city in decline. It had been the center of the world, and now the center had moved to Rome. And so it was a place that was very much in decline. And Athens was also the birthplace of democracy. You know, Alexander the Great ruled his empire by city-states. And in those city-states, the people were pretty much given uh, local rule, local authority. And so Athens was the birthplace of democracy where people could uh, govern themselves... ...and make decisions about themselves, have a liberty and a freedom. And that liberty and that freedom had led to prosperity... ...and had led to to comfort and had led to security. And they'd gotten used to to the self-rule, self-government... ...and by setting people free, they they saw that that was a, a way to prosperity... ...and beautiful art and great architecture. A magnificent city had been built, but now they were under the authority of the emperor... And a lot of that self-rule and autonomy and independence had been taken away from them and now they were submitted to Caesar, the emperor. And so a lot of the ideas and the culture and the structure and the institutions that had brought them prosperity were now gone. And so they were looking for things to provide them a sense of safety and security and comfort and prosperity and, and all of those things that they had anchored to were now gone from them and so they were looking for Security and safety. And much of the art depicted the activities of their pagan gods. Most of the architecture was to make temples to those pagan gods. One uh, historian said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person, (laughs) the place was filled with statues filled with images, filled with gods. Everybody had their own personal gods, and plus there was the, uh, uh, maybe in school you studied the Greek mythology, and all of the gods, they had a god that governed every aspect of their life. Uh, You know, a god over the sun, a god over the rain, a god over the moon, a god over uh, their crops, a god over uh, the insects, a god over the frogs. They, They had these multitude of gods that controlled every single aspect of life, and uh, They had created their gods in their own image, and so their gods were sometimes uh, uh, subject to temper tantrums. They were fickle. You didn't really know what they needed or what they believed or what they would accept. And so you were always fearful of running foul of the God and Him taking out His anger on you and wiping you out. And maybe they thought that their lack of security, their lack of comfort, their lack of peace was because they had offended the gods. They had offended one of their gods, and uh, maybe the god that they offended was one that they didn't even know about. And so to make sure that that god they didn't know about wasn't angry at them and it wasn't the source of their discomfort and their lack of security and their lack of peace, uh, they wanted to make sure that they had their bases covered, so they went and made an altar to an unknown god and made sacrifices to him. And that's what Paul uses to uh, launch into his explanation of the truth. That God that you worship is unknown, he I declare to you. And we'll look at Paul's discussion next week. Uh, Today, we're focusing on his provocation over their lostness. He was provoked because the city was filled with gods. All these worthless idols, statues, temples to pagan gods. And they were so afraid, so fearful that they would offend one of those gods and that God would take out his anger on them, that they lived in constant state of Uncertainty and fear, the place was filled with idols. And, you know, I believe that there are more gods in our culture than Greek even imagined. We are too sophisticated to bow down to a statue, to, as we read about in Isaiah, to make something out of wood and then bow down and worship it, or to make something out of gold and, and to uh, uh, put our hope in that for security and safety. We're too sophisticated for that, but really an idol is anything that we love more than God. An idol is anything that we are willing to sin against God in order to get. And our idol usually, uh, and really an idol is just self-worship. They had created gods in their own image. We love ourselves. We want to serve ourselves. We want to, to be comfortable and safe, and we will do whatever it takes to get safety and security for ourselves. We, we find idol in our possessions, in our position, in our prestige, in our comfort, in our security. So many idols, so many things that we look to for security. So many people have an idol in government. The government, we expect to to keep us safe from womb to tomb. We want the government to take care of us. We want the government to be the source of our security. We look to our possessions to give us comfort, to make us safe, to give us security. We look for our wealth and prestige. The the, the land is filled with idols. An idol is anything that you give the love and devotion that is due only to God. An idol is anything that you look for, uh, look to do for you what only God can do. An idol is the source of your help and your hope and your comfort and your security. Paul was provoked when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Have you ever been provoked in your spirit because of the lostness that's around you? And people finding hope and security in things or possession or government, looking to something that cannot save to be their savior. Have you ever been provoked in your spirit because there are so many lost people around you that are given over to idols? Paul was provoked, and because he was provoked, he went into the, into the synagogue and began to preach. He, it wasn't his plan. He, he was all by himself. He didn't have the rest of his team. Silas and Timothy weren't with him. He had kind of just gone to Athens to, to sightsee, and as he saw, he was provoked in his spirit by all of the idols, and he could not be silent. So he went to the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that were there. And not only that, he went to the marketplace every day and would talk to whoever would listen to him because he was provoked in his spirit because the city was filled with idols. Have you ever been provoked by the lostness that is around you? And people worshiping and seeking gods that cannot save. And as it moved you to speak, to reason, to explain the scriptures, and to demonstrate that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one God, and he is totally sufficient. He is all that we need. He is our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer. No other God is needed, and no other God is tolerated, because there's only one true and living God, and he is perfectly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he we went to the marketplace and uh, there he met the Epicureans. So the Athens was filled with idols. It also was filled with Epicureans. Now that's something that we don't, uh, we got to go look at. Well, the Epicureans were basically people who thought that the total goal in life was happiness. The only goal in life is to don't worry, be happy. That was the Epicureans. Do you see that in our culture around us? That happiness is the ultimate goal? Happiness is the only thing that matters? Happiness is the only thing that I will seek? I just want to be happy? Well, that's who the Epicureans were. The Epicureans, their goal was to have a pain-free life. Not to experience physical pain not to experience emotional pain, not to experience mental pain or spiritual pain. They just wanted to be happy and to have a, spirit, a, 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 a position of peace. They just wanted to experience peace. And you know how they decided uh, that they would be peaceful? Well, they didn't need to worry about all these gods. If you get distracted by gods, gods that you offend... And discipline you—that robs you of your happiness. And so they taught that the gods were far away. They believed in gods, but they were far away. They had more important things to do. They weren't very interested in people. They didn't care about humans. They didn't care about what humans did. And so there's no reason for the humans to be worried about what God the gods think. Just do what feels good to you. Just be happy. Don't worry about God's discipline. And they also believed that the physical was all that there was. And so when your body died, that was it. You would not stand before the gods in judgment. And so you don't have to worry about that either. And so the Epicureans just wanted to avoid pain. Whatever it takes to not have physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. pursue happiness and i don't have to worry about god's discipline and i don't have to worry about god's judgment eat drink be merry and tomorrow i die and cease to exist and so there were the epicureans there their whole goal in life was to be happy you see that around us oh i don't have to worry about god he's he yeah there's a god but he's he, he doesn't really care what i do And all I need to do is do whatever it takes to avoid pain. If I'm feeling pain and the cure comes in the bottom of some bottle, that's what I need to do. If I have emotional pain because there's some uh, uh, social construct, some rule that's been placed on me that goes against what I want to do, I don't have to worry about that rule because there is no law, there is no God, there is no lawgiver. I can do what I want to do. I can do what feels good to me. The goal is to be happy and it doesn't matter what I have to do to achieve happiness. That's what I'm going to do. Those are the Epicureans. And those people were in Greece. And Paul talks to the Epicureans and he was provoked by their lostness. And yes, certainly, uh, uh, you know, God speaks to us about joy and he speaks to us about happiness. But the way to happiness is not to ignore the lawgiver. The way to happiness is to Look at the law. See how I fall short of the law and recognize that God has provided forgiveness to me in Christ Jesus. Far from being detached, God entered the world. God became a man and came into the world to pay the penalty for us lawbreakers so that we might be forgiven and we might have everlasting life. And when we the true way to happiness is to turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ to be born again to new life, everlasting life. But even with that happiness comes suffering. God himself came and suffered and learned obedience through the things that he suffered and he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And so Paul enc- encountered the Epicureans, those who only wanted to be happy. That was their whole goal in life. So it was filled with idols, Athens had Epicureans, and not only did Athens have Epicureans, but Athens had Stoics. Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Now the Stoics (laughs) believed that everything came from logic and reason and being rational. The Stoics tried to divorce emotion or passions from all of their decision-making. They were the rationalists, the, the the logic and reason. And so every decision that you have to make, you have to totally discount emotion, how you feel about it, and just look at the logic and the reason and come to all of your decisions through rational reasoning and logical thought. And their philosophy was based on the fact that they believed that God is everywhere, and God is everything, and God is even me. I am God, and I have within me divine reason, and I can make my own law, and through my own logic and my own reason and my own rationality, I can decide what's best for me based on that interdivine presence, that spark within me. And so they, they believed that all the answer to life's problems were within themselves. And through reason and rational thought and logic, they could come up with their own law. And they believed in reason and ratchets. These are the people who say, just follow the science. Just follow the science. But you know, science, science is important. Science is significant, and science is only possible because God has created an orderly universe. God is the author of order and design, and and science can discover that order and design. But science cannot. Science is incomplete. Science has never given you one moral law. Science cannot tell you what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil and what is true and what is false. Science can tell you about creation, but it cannot give you moral law. And so the Stoics are the ones that say, just follow the science. Just go with reason and logic and rational thought. Because after all, I am God. And I can discover truth for myself. And truth is what makes sense to me. And it may not be true for you, but it's true for me. And those are the Stoics. All reason and logic and rationalism. And boy, do we see that around us today. Just follow the science. And it's actually those who say follow the science that discount the science, the natural law that God has put into creation. That men are men and women are women and they're different. They're not interchangeable. And that God's design is for the family. And different roles within the family, men and women have different roles and are essential to the, to the, to the building of society. Truth is not discovered from within. Truth is revealed to us from God in his truth. And so Paul was provoked by the lostness around him. It was filled with idols. It was filled with people who their only goal was to be happy. And it was filled with people who just used reason and logic and rational thought to determine truth. And Paul saw that lostness and he was provoked in his spirit and he could not be silent. He confronted their lostness with the truth, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And he went to the synagogue and reasoned with the people there, and he went into the marketplace and talked to anybody who would listen, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he told them the truth. And he spoke to them even though (laughs) they were not very complimentary of his speaking. Verse 18, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he's preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they called him a babbler. Now, this is an interesting word. That word babbler means one who picks up seeds. And so it's like a like, like a crow flying around and picking up seeds from different pastures, different fields, going around and picking up different seeds. And it came to be used for people who would hang around the marketplace and would just pick up scraps. The beggars, the people who didn't have, uh, uh, didn't have work to do, they would sit in the marketplace and hope to be able to gather scraps that had been dropped by people or even people would toss them some scraps. Uh, but then it came to be used for those who would simply pick up ideas from place to place ideas, teaching. And so they accused Paul of being a babbler, of going from place to place and just picking up truth and picking up uh, ideas and picking up teachings and picking up doctrines from all these places. It wasn't really a coherent doctrine. It was just a bunch of things that he had gathered from place to place, thoughts and ideas that he had gathered from uh, uh, from from different places. And, and it it wasn't Logical, it wasn't rational, it didn't make sense, and it didn't make you happy, and so it was to be rejected. They called him a babbler, just picking up thoughts from place to place, and uh and that's what he was accused of. And he was also accused of himself being a polytheist, declaring to them other gods, preaching to them Jesus God, God the Son, the Son of God, and they also believed that when he was preaching of the resurrection, The word Anastasia, they believed that he was preaching two different gods, Jesus and resurrection, Jesus and Anastasia. And so they accused him of being a polytheist just like they were. He's declaring to us foreign gods, different gods. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we know that this new doctrine is for which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ear, Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And then the fourth characteristic of lostness that we see in Athens is they were always looking for something new. The place was filled with idols and they had all of these gods that they hoped if they could figure out what the gods wanted, what the gods demanded of them, and if they could satisfy the gods, make the right sacrifice, do the right things, the gods would be happy with them and bring them blessing. But since they were Uh, in despair and distress as their uh, culture crumbled around them. They must have left some God out, so they built an altar to an unknown God. There were other people who wanted to reject the gods altogether and just be happy. Don't worry about trying to make the gods happy. You just make you happy. And then there were other people that said, oh, the answer's in science and logic and reason. We don't need to worry about God. We don't need to worry about a lawgiver. The law, the truth was in me. And they were always looking for something new. And they would gather at the place called the Areopagus to talk about these new ideas. All the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Some new thing. And so the Areopagus, two words, means hill of war. Uh, You know, the highest place in Athens. And so uh, if you know about military tactics, high high. Ground is key terrain, and if you want to be successful in uh, in a battle, it's good to have the the highest ground. And so this was the the god of uh, the the hill of war, and the Romans called it. And you may be more familiar with this term, Mars Hill, which would be the Roman uh, translation of Arapagus, Mars Hill, the hill of the war god Mars. And so they would come together, and it was a hill, and it had. Uh, stone stools that people would just sit there, and they would talk about the latest ideas. They're always looking for something new, new ideas, new truth. Rejecting the old paths, the old had it worked out for them, so they were always looking for something new. Does that describe our culture? Always looking for the new, the the new fad, even the obscure, uh, you know, parts of. Of Scripture, take a verse out of context and build a whole theology, a whole doctrine around it. Well, my philosophy is after 2,000 years of people studying the Bible, if I see something new there, it's probably not there because there are a lot of smarter people than me that have been studying the Bible for 2,000 years. And if it's new, uh, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new. We need to get back to the old paths. 500 years ago, Martin Luther tried to bring the church back to the Scripture. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, based on the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Those old paths. But people are always looking for some new thing, some new religious fad, some new teaching, some new doctrine. And it's not that the doctrine of God has been tried and found to be lacking. It's that the doctrine of God has not been tried. We've tried all these other things, all these new things. And so they were always looking for something new, and Paul was provoked by their lostness. The place was filled with idols. There were people there who just wanted to be happy. There were people there who just wanted reason and logic. And there were people just looking for the newest thing. And, And, you know, they weren't really interested in finding the truth They were more interested in the pursuit of truth and just talking about new things. Not really trying to be taught, not really trying to learn, but just talk about the new ideas and the new things and to talk about them. And so when Paul came to Athens, he was provoked by their lostness. Angry, irritated, unsettled, and he could not be silent. That was not his plan. He was by himself. He he had come just to wait for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. But because he was so provoked in his spirit, he could not be silent. And when he began to speak, they called him a babbler, they called him a polytheist, declaring foreign gods, speaking things that are strange to us. But because they always want to hear the new ideas, they brought him and they listened to what he had to say. And Paul took advantage of it. He took advantage of that opportunity to speak. Even though their motives weren't pure. They didn't really want to know the truth. They just wanted to hear the new ideas and maybe ridicule him and uh, shoot it down so they could conserve their old ideas. Conserve the devotion to the Greek gods. But they brought Paul and Paul took advantage of the opportunity, and he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him, I proclaim to you. And next week we'll break out Paul's message on Mars Hill at the Areopagus on the Hill of War. But today we focus on the question. Have you ever been provoked by the lostness around you? Seeing people who worship other things, who are looking to other things to provide what only God can provide, comfort, safety, security, selling themselves willing to sin against God to get something that can't satisfy? Has that ever broken your heart? Moved your spirit, provoked your spirit? Has your spirit ever been provoked by people who just want to be happy and, and, and eliminate pain? They believe that all suffering is bad and, and they see no value in suffering. They just will do whatever it takes to eliminate pain. To do whatever feels good, no matter what it might cost them. They just want to be happy, pain free, have peace. Has that ever provoked your spirit? Made you angry at their lostness? Motivated you to tell them the truth? About a God who suffers so that we might have life and calls us to take up our cross and follow him so we might have life? Have you ever been provoked by the reason and rational people believing that the truth is within them, that they are ultimately God and they can make their own rules out of their rational thought and their logic and their reasoning? Has that ever provoked your spirit? And moved you to speak. Maybe it wasn't your plan. The rest of the team's not there. You're not gifted in that, in in evangelism. You haven't been called to preach. But the provocation in your spirit makes you where you can't be stopped. You feel the need to confront lostness with the truth. To confront the darkness with the light of the gospel. Have you ever been provoked by lostness? And you know, Paul was declaring something new. Not new in time, as in recent. But new as in different than anything these people had ever heard. Oh, the gospel that Paul proclaimed was as old as the garden that god created us in his own image so we could know him but we sinned against god we rebelled against god we wanted to be our own god we used our own reason our own our own logic oh this is good for food it's good for gaining wisdom makes sense to me and it'll make me feel good make me happy make me like god throw off all those rules I made an idol of self. I just want to be happy. I use my reason. It makes sense to me. And I rebel against God because I want to be wise. But even then, God promised one that would come and crush the head of the serpent. Promised a savior. So it's new and kind. Even though it's as old as creation or before the foundation of the earth. But it's also new and kind in that all of these Greek gods, all the Greeks and all, every single world religion, with the exception of Christianity, is about man trying to reach up to God. Man trying to figure out how to get to God. He looks at creation, he knows there's a God. He knows there's something that made all this. It's here, so something had to make it. It, it. it has order and design. It's predictable. He knows there's a God, and the law of God is written on his heart. He knows there's a God, and he he knows he falls short, and so he's trying to figure out how to reach up to God through sacrifice or through this temple or through uh, some religious activity or self-punishment. Trying to figure out how to get up to God. That's what they were doing. How can I reach up to God? How can I know this unknown God and make him happy so he will bless me? But the God that Paul declares is a God that knew we could never reach up to him. A God that knew that we are helpless and hopeless, dead in trespasses and sin, and, and can do nothing right in his sight. There is no way we can reach up to him. And the Christian God knew we could not reach up to him, so what did he do? He came to us. Far from being like the Epicurean God, way over there, not caring. No, he cared and he came. He came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled his law, his moral standard, and then he fulfilled the demands of the law against sinners by dying on the cross, by giving his son and pouring out his wrath on him. And raising him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. These Athenians were trying to figure out how to reach up to God. And Paul declared to them a God who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And suffered and died so that we might have life and so that we might know him. And so Paul was provoked by their lostness. He said he was filled with idols, filled with people who just wanted to be happy, people who just followed the science. And Paul declared to them, the God, all sufficient. There need be no other, and he will tolerate no other. And a God who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and fulfilled all his righteous requirements so that sinners might be forgiven and that he might bring them to himself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would help us to be provoked by lostness. That our spirits would be unsettled when we see the lostness around us. We people we we see people putting faith and confidence and trust in something, some things and things and gods that cannot save. Lord, may that break us. And Lord, may we be provoked by seeing people that just want to be happy, just be pain free, have peace. And chasing after things that cannot bring that. Lord, help us to be provoked by those who just reason, logic, believe that they can come up with the law in themselves. When you tell us that our hearts are evil and deceptive and will lie to us. Lord, help us to be provoked by lostness. And help us to speak. Speak the truth of Jesus, an all sufficient God need no other, no other tolerated, but who comes to us in Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to you. Lord, may we be provoked by lostness and call sinners to repent and believe. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon talked about uh, Luther who lived in the 1500s, 20. In 420, Come, Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, jesus ready stands to save you full of pity love and power i will arise and go to jesus he will embrace me in his arms in the arms of my dear savior Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come ye weary, heavy laden lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of My dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth, Is to feel your need of Him. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make you complete in every good work, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.